morning. Will you please take your Bibles with me this morning and open them to Mark chapter number 12. Mark 12. We're going to finish this chapter today by looking at verses 35 through 44. This is the first Sunday of 2022. 2022. In the year of our Lord. On this day, I sometimes preach a, a sort of New Year's message that might be helpful in sort of resetting our focus on the new year, but the beauty of verse-by-verse exposition through books of the Bible is that God's Word always gives us what we need when we need it. And what Jesus has to say at the end of Mark 12 really does a better job at resetting our focus for the new year than anything I might be able to come up with from somewhere else. So let's look at these verses together, Mark 12, beginning at verse number 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greeting in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feast, who devour widows' houses, And for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting in money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. Lord, we ask your blessing upon the reading of your inspired, inerrant, authoritative and sufficient word, Lord, your infallible word, incapable of error. We anchor to it. We pray to your spirit would come to our hearts now and illuminate this passage to us so that we would grow to be more like Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there's one here this morning who does not know Jesus as Savior and Lord, or one watching, or listening. Lord, your Holy Spirit is welcome to come and weigh heavy with conviction upon those hearts to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. We ask it in His name and for His glory. Amen. So last Sunday, after 
Well, we got home from church, which is only a few steps. We don't have a long commute. Uh, but after, uh, after we got home, I, I said to my wife in the kitchen, well, how was my sermon? In fact, I almost always ask that question to my, of my wife and even my children. I'll say, how, how was the sermon? How did you, you know, what did you think? Looking for some feedback, unless, of course, I know that it was really a dud, and then I just quietly go and watch football. Uh, but last week, I was a little bit worried because I saw a few more blank stares than usual. You see, the preacher, or any public speaker, for that matter, has the unique advantage point. Now, I'm about to give you all a sort of a self-conscious complex here. Don't worry about it. But he has the unique vantage point of, of seeing how the crowd is either engaging or disengaging from what he is saying. And in our passage today, Jesus, the master preacher, there's never been another preacher like him. And we find him again preaching and teaching in the temple. Remember from a few weeks ago before we took our our short break for our Advent and Christmas sermons. This is most likely Tuesday of Passover week. He's in the temple teaching. And Mark includes this little phrase in verse 37, and the great throng heard him gladly. The New International Version says, the large crowd listened to him with great delight. There were no blank stares in that crowd that day. But there was another group there in the temple hearing Jesus who may not have enjoyed him so much. And that was the scribes. They, along with the chief priests and the other religious leaders, were still fuming over him turning over the tables and shutting down their corrupt merchandising enterprise in the temple just the day before. Remember, that happened on Monday of Passover week. And so they started asking him these controversial questions. Remember, we went through those, these questions. They wanted to trap him in his words, just trying to find a way to get rid of him. But he silenced them with his wisdom. And now, it was his turn. And in this passage... Friends, Jesus is going to excoriate the scribes. He's going to take them, as my dad used to say, out to the woodshed. These scribes who were hypocrites, who had a superficial piety that covered up their sin. And I wonder, dear brothers and sisters, might we find something of ourselves here in these scribes today? Will we, like the crowd, hear Him gladly? Will we hear His word gladly? Or will we give Him that blank stare of disengagement? Or even worse, the angry stare of false and self-sufficient righteousness?
Friends, let's pray that by God's grace we will hear Him gladly as we work through this passage. And I want to use three main headings to do that. And the first is that Jesus challenges deficient doctrine. He challenges deficient doctrine. In verse 35, he says this, How can the scribes say that Christ, the Christ, is the son of David? We've often noted that the scribes were experts. They were expert teachers of the Old Testament. And they would have been familiar with all of the prophecies concerning the future Messiah and His kingdom. And one of those expectations was that the promised Messiah, the Christ, would come from the lineage, the house of David, and so be called the son of David. The scribes knew this. And so they rightly taught that the Christ, or the Messiah, the chosen one, would be called the son of David. But there were two big problems with their doctrine. Two problems, major problems. Number one, it was orthodox, it was correct, but it did not lead them to Jesus as the Christ. You see? It was correct. He will be called the son of David, but it didn't lead them to the true son of David, (laughs) Jesus, the Christ. And so Jesus then quotes from Psalm 110, which is a a Messianic psalm. He says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, by the way, that phrase there, in the Holy Spirit, sort of captures the belief of Jesus about the Old Testament, that it was divinely inspired. This is how Jesus viewed the Scripture. It was from the Holy Spirit. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how then is he his son? This is a Messianic psalm, a psalm that points to the future reign of Israel's Messiah. It's also a royal psalm that celebrates the kingship of God's king. And Jesus cites it, and he sort of interpretively interacts with it as if the scribes should be able to discern that it actually points to him. You see, these theological PhDs, as the scribes were in modern parlance, they should have recognized Jesus as the Christ. But their doctrine was flawed. You see, the general expectation was that the Messianic son of David would deliver Israel from Roman oppression. He would restore the kingdom to Israel. But in their hope for deliverance from Rome, they missed the Messiah who would deliver them from sin. And that's really our problem today, isn't it? We want to be saved from suffering, from affliction, from oppression but few want to be saved from their sin. So like the scribes, although we are not experts, we are not PhDs in the law, 
but we are like them at heart. We often miss the unique identity of the true Son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has come to rescue from our sin, not from hardship and suffering. But that's what we often want to be rescued from. Their doctrine was orthodox, but it did not lead them to Jesus. Secondly, the scribes believed that they, they believed the right things about the Messiah being the son of David. They got that part right. But their doctrine, their belief was inadequate because it didn't lead them to the lordship of Christ. So it didn't lead them to the identity of Christ, nor the lordship of Christ. Look at verse 37. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son, Jesus asked. He sort of asks this open-ended question. If David called the, the, the Messiah Lord, right, then how is he his son? Why do the scribes call him the son of David? It's, it's, a, it's almost an, an enigma, a mystery, a puzzle. But what Jesus is doing is he is interpreting Psalm 110 as a witness to both his unique identity as the Christ, as the Messiah, and also his unique identity as Lord. It's almost as if he's saying, if King David saw and submitted to the lordship of the coming Messiah, then why can't the scribes? That's, that's really the, the lingering implication here. Why can't they recognize Jesus like the blind beggar Bartimaeus did in Mark chapter 10 when he said, Jesus, what? Son of David, have mercy on me. So brothers and sisters, if what we believe about Jesus doesn't lead us into submission to his lordship, then what we believe about him is wrong, no matter how theologically correct it is. You can check off the Apostles' Creed. You can check off the Nicene Creed. You can check off the Athanasian Creed. You can check off the Westminster Confession, the London Baptist Confession, 1689, all of it. But if it doesn't produce a submission to lordship, to his lordship, then you don't really believe it, do you? No matter how theologically correct it is, if our Christology, if what we believe about Jesus doesn't bring us into submission to his reign over our lives so that our driving focus in all things is obedience to him, then our Christology is errant. Our doctrine is is deficient, and it is insufficient to save. You see, friends, you can believe the right things about Jesus and still not know Jesus. He can be standing in front of your face through His Word, and you miss Him altogether because He is not the Messiah, not the Christ, not the Savior that you expect 
Or more accurately, he's not the Savior that you want. That was the problem. He's not the Savior that we want. He challenges our inadequate, our deficient doctrine. He's always asking, what will we believe about him? Will we believe that he is who he says he is? Or will we, will we redefine him in our own terms, according to our own expectations? He won't have it. He won't be that, that Savior. Secondly, Jesus exposes fake piety. Look at verse number 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. <laughs> Listen to the way Jesus is talking here. This is... Man. He knows what's coming. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. They're already mad at him. They already hate him. They want him dead. After he turned over the temples, Mark says they were seeking a way to destroy him. But he's not backing off. He says they like the best seats in the synagogues. The places of honor at feast. They devour, verse 40, widows' houses, and for a pretense they make long prayers. Jesus says they will receive the greater condemnation. He's exposing their fake piety, and this really shouldn't be an unexpected point because deficient doctrine inevitably leads to fake piety or insincere righteousness. If we don't believe rightly, then we're not going to live rightly. This was the sin of the scribes. They had the appearance of devotion, but the absence of true righteousness. They dressed to be noticed and to be honored. Friends, this is the sin of pride. The scribes possessed a self-promoting piety, which in reality is no piety at all. Jesus said, they devour widows' houses. Now, what in the world does that mean? You see, scribes also functioned as lawyers. And they would sometimes manage the affairs of widows. But in their greed, they would often cheat these poor widows out of what little they had. Some commentators think, that some scribes would even offer long intercessory prayers in return for money. And that may very well be what Jesus means when he says, for a pretense, they make long prayers. They use their religious position as a means to make money by preying upon the vulnerable. They were insincere. They were greedy. Not necessarily all of them. We have to be careful not to paint with a broad brush. But Jesus took issue 
with the general vibe, the general practice of the scribes. But you know what? This kind of fake piety is not limited to just first century Judaism, is it? We've seen it all throughout the history of the Christian church. In fact, when I was reading this and studying this, I couldn't help but think of all the popery of the Roman church. And I, I cut about a, a paragraph out of my sermon because I didn't want to get too controversial. But I couldn't help but think about the ways the Roman church has, a, has acted in these ways and abused the people of God throughout the centuries. This is the reason that we are not Catholic today, that we are Protestant. Because of spiritual abuse, like this, preying upon the vulnerable. We don't just see it in the church leadership or in church history, but we also see it among the people in the pew, don't we? This sort of fake piety. This insincere righteousness. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says about the danger of insincere righteousness. Righteousness. He says this, Whatever we do in religion, let us never wear a cloak. Let us be real, honest, thorough, and sincere in our Christianity. We cannot deceive an all-seeing God. We may take poor, short-sighted humans by a little talk and religious claims, a few cliches, and a show of devoutness. But God is not mocked. He discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. His all-seeing eye pierces through the paint and the varnish and tinsel which cover the unsound heart. Friends, do you hear what Raoul is getting at? Do we have unsound hearts this morning? Don't misunderstand, we are all sinners saved by grace. We will sin, sometimes in very bad ways. But do we hide our sin behind a cloak of piety? Are we so concerned with projecting a pious public reputation that we hide who we really are? There is special judgment reserved for those who have lived like this. Jesus says it in verse 40. At the end of verse 40, he says, They will receive the greater condemnation. How many times have we heard an unbeliever say, Well, I've turned off to Christianity because of the hypocrites. Well, two things. Number one, that's no excuse. That's not going to pass with God on judgment day but it does lay some responsibility at our feet when we live in ways proclaiming one thing right believing one thing but acting out another pretending to be pious Having our reputation in the public sound, but at home we're a whole different person. Beware of fake.
piety, friends. Let's be honest about ourselves. Let's look to Christ who can take away our sin and cleanse us from our insincerity. It's not beyond repentance. But we must repent. And the first step to repentance is acknowledgement. Acknowledging our own fakeness. Lastly, in this passage, we see that Jesus commends righteous insignificance. He commends righteous insignificance. Look at verse number 41. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting in money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she had. All she had to live on. So the great preacher, Jesus, who has the attention of this crowd, He's going to illustrate what true piety really looks like. And he doesn't point to a scribe or a priest or a Pharisee. He sees all the Jewish pilgrims at the temple during Passover week. He sees them dropping large sums of money into the offering box. But he doesn't point to them either. He points to a poor widow. Perhaps, perhaps even one of the widows whose house had been devoured by the scribes. Perhaps one of the widows who had been taken advantage of by the scribes. Perhaps the very scribe who cheated her was in the temple, listening, hearing him, perhaps. She put in two copper coins, the least valuable currency used throughout the Roman Empire. But it was all she had. And Jesus says that this poor woman gave more than all of the rich gave. Here she was, widowed, alone, poor, offering the last of what she had to God with no thought of being recognized, applauded, or honored. You see the contrast that Jesus is painting here? The scribes wanted to be honored and recognized. But here this widow was tossing in her two coins, 
No one was wowed by the size of her gift. Friends, no one. If you give $5, $10 a week, $20 a week to the offering, $2 a week, no one is going to bring that up in church. But if someone walks into here and writes a $100,000 check and puts it in the offering, do you think we might recognize that? Oh, how fake our piety has become. No one was wowed by her gift. It was insignificant. But I'll tell you what, friends, it got the attention of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you ever feel like what you have to offer the kingdom of God is just two cents? Two copper coins. A penny. Insignificant. I think we may all at times feel like that. But the value of what we offer to God, which is much more than money. Don't just get fixated on the money part of this passage. This is about the attitude of heart. That's what Jesus is getting at here. The value of what we offer to God is determined by the heart attitude with which we give it. Whether it's our money, our time, our prayer, Our service. And so then what is small and insignificant becomes great if given out of sincere devotion to the Lord. This poor widow is modeling true piety. Not the scribe. It does not matter that we do not have great sums to give to the kingdom or that our lives are simple and ordinary. It does not matter that we have no celebrity factor about us. Jesus sees our sacrifice. He notices our insignificance and He will use it for His glory. I want to read a quote from Another Anglican pastor, J.C. Ryle, was Anglican. An 18th century Anglican pastor in England. His name was Robert Hawker. Ironically, he wrote the poor man's commentary. That's what it's called. It's free. You can read it on the internet. I encourage you to do so. He'll always point you to Jesus, no matter what. Robert Hawker says this. The poor widow attracted the special notice of Jesus. How little was she conscious whose eye was upon her? (laughs) How little did she think that this private retired act would be published to the very end of time in the church of Christ and be had in everlasting remembrance? Friends, here we are, 2020-something years, well, I don't know, 2,000 years later. Still talking about this poor widow in an age of internet and Wi-Fi and self-driving electric cars. Hawker says this, Reader, that's you and me, 
What have we to cast into the Lord's treasury? Indeed, nothing but what we have first received. We too have mites, soul, and body. You mean the, the parable is often traditionally referred to as the widow's mite. We too have mites, soul, and body, and these are both the Lord's. Oh, he says, for grace to give both of these, and Jesus looking on. She won't make Time Magazine, but she made this sermon today. She won't go down in Encyclopedia Britannica or the World Book. (laughs) But she went down in God's book. Meanwhile, the scribes Or infamous for a different reason. And Jesus' rebuke of these greedy men, that his recognition of the widow's offering would actually be the last event of his public ministry. This is it. This is chapter closed for the public ministry of Jesus. The final few days of Passover week, Wednesday, Thursday, He's going to spend in private with his disciples, teaching them about the things that are to come. He was always teaching, always preaching. Some crowds heard him gladly, like the crowd in this passage today. Other crowds dismissed him, and yet others, especially the pious and the self-righteous, they, they hated him. But how will we hear him today, friends? Will we hear him gladly and respond to his word in faith and obedience? Or will we just keep on living like what he says isn't really all that relevant for our lives? Will we see the widow's offering of everything that she had and be reminded of Christ's offering for us? He gave himself up to the hatred of all those who wanted him dead. He gave himself up to the holy wrath of his father. And he would suffer for sins that were not his own. He gave all of himself for us and for our sin. Not his. So that if we would come and kneel at the cross as sinners justly deserving death and look on him in repentance and faith, then we may have forgiveness for our sins and be reconciled to our Creator. This woman, in a very unique way, was in some 
fashion preaching the gospel by her act of sacrifice, laying it all, giving it all, offering it all to God. That's what Jesus did for us. Friends, I want to pray that you will hear him gladly today and respond in faith. Let's bow for prayer.